0: Well, back in 2017, California had record rainfall, and combined with fires the previous season, that turned into record landslides. What was dubbed uh, the mother of all landslides happened on the central coast. It buried the PCH, and it blocked off Big Sur to the south. Then trouble struck the north. A hiker walking under Pfeiffer Canyon Bridge noticed that the pillars were washing out, and the bridge was visibly sagging. A few days later, it was condemned, and destroyed. And on that day, Big Sur became an island. They had no access, no road access in or out from the north or the south. Now it continued for eight months from February through uh, October. Given the urgency of the situation though, road crews pulled off a Herculean effort and they essentially did seven months of work in, or rather seven years work in seven months time, and they rebuilt that bridge. And a lifeline to the residents opened once again. Just kind of thinking about this incident, serves as a pretty good metaphor for our relationships. Because people are naturally like islands or individuals, but programmed within us is this need to share life with others and, and relate to others. So we enter into relationship with other people, and it's kind of like building a bridge between two islands. Traffic flows both ways. It should be to the betterment of both people. Some bridges come pre-made, like between parents and children. Others are are built over time, like between friends or coworkers or or spouses. We're all connected to many people in many ways by these bridges. But sometimes bridges collapse. The storms of life come, and they have a way of revealing which of our relationships were built on a, a poor foundation. Anger, selfishness, strife, they come out of us, and they have a way of eroding the foundation of our relationships relationships break down a rift forms between two people traffic comes to a halt and it is not for the better of these two people and to make matters worse pride often gets in the way of rebuilding efforts selfishness reigns hearts grow cold And some would rather just live alone as an island than commit to the hard work of reconciliation. And indeed, it is very hard work. Some of you have gone through a type of reconciliation, know how much work is involved. Massive humility is required. Someone's just going to have to swallow their pride. Guilt, shame, hurt, anger, they all have to be dealt with biblically. And that's not a small order. And then, of course, for these bridges to be truly rebuilt and reopened to traffic, there must be an exchange of forgiveness. And that's a difficult thing to do as well. C.S. Lewis said, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. know, you have another person who, who used their bridge to come over and, and hurt you. Now they want access to your life again. Your, your, your fear and your flesh is telling you that's the last thing you want to do, but not God. Where are people forgiven of an infinite sin debt before God? And now he calls us to do the same, to forgive as we have been forgiven. We're to seek forgiveness for the hurt we may have caused to others and pursue peace and reconciliation. This is especially critical for for fellow believers in the church. When you have two people who, who claim to have experienced the transforming reconciliation of Christ, in God's glory is at stake? The church's witness is at stake? If fellow believers can't live together and reconcile and live in peace, what does it say about our faith? But this is all very hard work, this business of reconciliation and bridge rebuilding. But it is rewarding work and it is worthwhile work, which is why Christ said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. This is just what the children of God do. They don't fake peace. They don't break peace. They make peace. How though, how do you become a peacemaker? How do you repair these relationship bridges? It's not easy. It's not simple, especially when things get messy. But thankfully, God's word convicts us, guides us, and instructs us. It tells us how to walk the way of peace. And That's some instruction we as a church need to receive and apply to our lives. And that's something we're going to do this morning from Paul's epistle to Philemon. So take your Bibles, open there now, open to Philemon, the book of Philemon. Philemon is the shortest of all of Paul's letters. and It's not really theological at all. No major doctrines are dissected or divulged here. And so what's this letter about? It's about peacemaking and bridge building. We get to witness Paul as a peacemaker, brokering reconciliation between these other two men, Philemon and Onesimus, trying to unite them as brothers. But sin makes things messy. Life in a fallen world makes things messy. That's reflected here in the institution of slavery, because Onesimus was Philemon's, runaway slave. Slavery may be the chief epitome of man's depraved heart after the fall, yet the the typical treatment of slaves by masters is just incompatible with new life in Christ. Now, slavery in ancient Rome was much different than slavery in America, something we'll learn more about next week. But Roman slavery was still brutal. I mean, runaway slaves were entirely at the, the will of their master common punishments <clears throat> included flogging, branding, crucifixion, or being thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. And that's what the culture around Philemon would have expected of him. You, you can't just let Onesimus go for for running away. I mean, what kind of message would that send to the other slaves? They, they expect him to deal harshly with Onesimus. But again, what society expected is just now incompatible with this new life in Christ. When a slave owner becomes a Christian, how does that change things? When a slave becomes a Christian, how does that change things? Well, it's meant to change everything. Most of all, it redefines the relationship between the two, no longer as slave master, but as just brother, brother. A bridge of common life is built in Christ, and one side is not higher than the other. They're they're equal before Christ. And so a new question really forms, how would you treat a runaway brother who has wronged you? Well, you certainly wouldn't flog him or, or crucify him. He's, he's your brother. You love him. Like the prodigal, you would welcome him back. You would forgive him. This is what Philemon must do now. This is what the gospel demands. Doesn't necessarily mean it's easy in different circumstances of life. The right road is often the hard road. At times, we need to be instructed and challenged to do what is right. And that's what we find Paul doing in Philemon. Onesimus had made his way to Rome, but by a stroke of God's amazing providence, he encounters the apostle Paul and and comes to genuine salvation. He's, He's born again. And thereafter, he immediately bears fruit. He enters the ministry, just serving Paul's needs in prison. Paul had come to regard him as, as a special child in the faith, a beloved brother. And Paul knew, however, that Onesimus needed to be reconciled to Philemon, whom he had wronged and likely stolen from, as we learned last time. Really, you know, Paul would rather have just kept Onesimus by his side because he was such a helpful ministry partner, but, but he didn't want to force Philemon to release his slave or do anything out of compulsion. Paul thought it best to send Onesimus back to Philemon, who's part of the Colossian church. But then he had this letter in hand, Philemon, where Paul is going to be urging Philemon to do the right thing of his own free will. Now, thankfully, we get the impression that it would not be a big stretch for Philemon to do the right thing. We learned last time in the introduction, verses 1 through 7, that Philemon is a man of faith. In Christ and love for all the saints. You now, the church has already been, Paul says in verse 7, refreshed by his love. Paul knows he doesn't need to bring down the hammer on Philemon to do what is right. He just needs a, a bit of a sanctified nudge in the right direction. Philemon needs the right thoughts and the right course of action planted in his mind, not forced down his throat. Meaningful reconciliation can only take place by Philemon's free will. So Paul writes this letter to bring that about. He's trying to broker peace and reconciliation between these two. They might see each other no longer as slave and master, but just brother and brother. And as for us, though, for our part, we get to witness really master peacemaking at work. And I think that's the greater value of this letter. Because Philemon is an entirely historical letter. It's all in the first century. Paul is writing to Philemon about a very specific set of circumstances, but Paul is long gone. Philemon's long gone. Even ancient Rome with its slavery is long gone. None of this was directly written to the church today, but Philemon is part of inspired scripture and profitable in showing us just what the love of Christ looks like lived out. This is our, our theology now in practice How new life in Christ should redefine our relationships and build bridges between people. Bring peace even in the hardest of circumstances. That's something the church needs to learn and implement in every age. So this morning we're carrying on with part two, verses eight through 16. And here Paul begins really his his masterful appeal to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. And as we observe, we can find six peacemaking principles at work, which we still need to build bridges of reconciliation today. That's what we're going to try and observe. Six peacemaking principles at work. Let's do that now. The first, favor love over authority. Favor love over authority. So what Paul is doing, we'll read as we go, but we're going to pick back up in verse 8. Uh, He's gone through his introduction, greeting Onesimus, or rather greeting Philemon. And he says in verse 8, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, up to this point, Paul still hasn't directly addressed why he's writing. That will finally come in verse 10, where he lets the cat out of the bag that he's writing on behalf of Onesimus. But what Paul is doing first is, you might say, priming the pump. He's getting Philemon ready to receive what he's going to tell him. Part of that comes by lowering Philemon's guard. He's not backing Philemon into a corner. Paul is not, he's not pulling rank. He's not commanding Philemon to do the right thing. But he's basing his appeal just on brotherly love. And it's the old saying "Go you, or goes, you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Now, to be sure, Paul has the authority to command Philemon to do what he's asking. He says that in verse 8, He's he's got the confidence needed. The word speaks of boldness, just the, the ability to, to speak freely. Paul has all the boldness he needs to just cut it straight and say, call it like he sees it say what needs to be said that confidence comes in part from his apostleship i mean remember it was the risen lord himself who gave paul a, a delegated authority over the church but still he's not invoking his apostleship here in mean, verse 8 his confidence comes just in christ put aside his apostleship for the moment just the fact that he's a christian he knows what the right thing to do is here god's word and will are clear on what Philemon should do with Onesimus. That's all Paul needs to invoke a confidence to, to order him to do what is right. But even still, that, that's not what he's doing. He says, I, I could do that, but I'm not going to do that. He could just assert himself, order Philemon to do what is, what is proper, meaning what's fitting in the Lord. But no, instead he wants Philemon to come to the right conclusion on his own, he needs to come to see Onesimus through the lens of love. And that's why Paul is basing his appeal, not on authority, but love. You know, how verse eight begins with the therefore. Therefore what? It's connecting back to verse seven, where Paul had just finished testifying that he derives so much joy and comfort from Philemon's what? From his love. He, he was a man of love. Paul knows Therefore, in light of Philemon's loving character, he doesn't need to issue him a stern command. He needs only to appeal to him in love. And that's what he does. Verse nine, he says, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. And that right there is certainly a peacemaking principle to learn, to favor love over authority. If Paul had to, he could pull rank. He could use external compulsion just to pressure or force Philemon to do what he wanted. And the same goes today. You can can make people do things with external compulsion, pressure, fear. You can kind of force people to do even the right thing, but out of compulsion. Give them laws, give them harsh penalties for breaking those laws. And most people will do what is right out of fear. But that's the lower road. There's a higher road where you're not externally compelled to do what is right out of fear. But you're internally compelled to do what is right just out of love. It's a love for God, a love for others. And when you have such a genuine love for God and others, the amazing thing is you don't need any laws. You don't need the law to tell you what to do. The spirit within you will guide you into all righteousness you don't need to be coerced. It's why Paul himself said in Romans 13:10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And Philemon had already proven himself to be a man of love. Now he only needs to be pointed the way. Shown, you know, this is just what the way of loving your neighbor looks like when it comes to Onesimus. And thereafter, Paul's confident philemon will do the right thing because he has that type of heart as someone once said you don't always have to cut with the sword of the word sometimes you can point with it now after this in verse 9 paul includes two statements about himself just a little effort to ingratiate himself to philemon that he might listen to his appeal he adds since i am such a person as paul the aged and now also a prisoner of christ jesus and Paul's not that old by today's standard. He's probably around 60, but he, he had put, I'm sure, a lot of mileage on his body with all of his suffering for the gospel. I imagine he sure felt pretty old. And now he's, he's literally in chains. He is literally now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul was Philemon's spiritual father. Now he's an older man. He's, he's suffering for doing what is right. If anything, this should elicit Philemon's love for Paul he just might might receive his loving appeal. Already though, it's worth reflecting just just in your own life. Why do you do the things that you do? Or why do you do the things that are proper, that are fitting in the Lord? Is it fear? Fear of authority, fear of punishment, fear of consequences? Are you mostly a fear-driven person? And if so, examine your heart. Where's the love? Where is there a genuine love for God, for his people? Because that, that is the higher way. It's far better to be driven by love than fear. And that really is all the law you need to do the right thing. And furthermore, as you apply that to reconciliation, as you think about peacemaking, what do you think is, is really going to bring about a more meaningful peace between two parties? You know, brute force, commands, threats, external compulsion, or love. Now, hopefully, if you're dealing with a fellow believer, you likewise can base whatever appeal you have on love. As for Philemon, Paul wanted him to do the right thing, but not out of fear or command or obligation, out of love. And this is why he's favoring love over authority. Secondly, favor the present over the past. Favor the present over the past, like verse 10, 11, he goes on and says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Now, a third of the way in this letter, we finally get to the real reason Paul is writing. He's appealing, he says, for his child Onesimus main verb here is appeal repeated from verse nine and it will carry through to verse 14 that's all just one long sentence in the Greek but Paul is urging or imploring Philemon not for himself this appeal is not for himself it's on behalf of another Onesimus we don't know where Paul is going with this appeal yet What is he going to ask Philemon to do? What does he want him to do regarding Onesimus? That won't become clear till later. For now, though, Paul is just introducing Onesimus. Thing is, though, Philemon already knows Onesimus. But at the same time, he doesn't. Because Onesimus has been completely changed since the last time Philemon saw him. So Paul wants to wisely reintroduce Onesimus to Philemon as a new man. He's favoring the present over the past. That's something I would want. If I were to run into some old high school classmates, they just couldn't help but think of me as they knew me, as I once was, which was not good. It was before my salvation, I was pretty wicked. And so I would hope, though, they would reserve judgment on me until they got to know the new me in Christ. And similarly, that's just what Paul wants of Philemon. Onesimus is not the guy who ran away. He's not that guy anymore. He's changed. How has he changed? Well, Paul says he's his child. He's been begotten in his imprisonment. It's just spiritual slang for saying he, Paul led him to the Lord. He's come to new birth. He's new. You see, Paul is using the present, who he is in the present, to challenge Philemon's view of Onesimus, which is still based in the past. In the past, probably everyone viewed Onesimus just as a slave, and it seems like a useless one at that. Perhaps he stood out as wicked, lazy, untrustworthy. And when Onesimus ran away, and as we learned, likely robbing Philemon in the process, it just cemented how everyone viewed Onesimus. But that is not the Onesimus of today. That's not who he is to Paul. Who is he to Paul? He is his child, his beloved son in the faith. He says, formerly, he was useless to you. That's the past. But now in the present, he's useful to them both. You know, here in verse 11, Paul is actually making a play on words using Onesimus' name. Onesimus back then was actually a very common slave name. And do you know why? Because Onesimus simply means useful. A lot of masters name their slaves useful, which is obviously terrible. But nonetheless, Paul is using that as a play on words in verse 11. He's essentially saying useful was formerly useless to you. But now he is useful to you and me. And he's using this play on words to highlight Onesimus' transformation. There was a time, you know, despite his name, that he was useless to Philemon. In his mind, he was wicked, thieving, runaway, slave. But that's not who he is anymore. Now in Christ, he lives up to his name's potential as, as useful. And not just as a slave, useful to the kingdom He's already contributing to the work of the gospel and supporting Paul. He's a gospel partner. Onesimus' transformation in salvation radically changed his relationship to Paul. Paul already knew that. Now Philemon just needs to come and and see the same thing. That this is not the same guy. And don't forget, the greater proof of everything Paul says in this letter is not found in the letter. It's found in the fact that as Philemon is there reading this letter, who is standing right there? Onesimus. He's been sent back with the letter. That's all the proof he needs to to see that he is a changed man. He was repentant. He had a change of heart. He was willing to go back and submit himself to his master, believing the best, hoping for the best. But that was a very risky thing to do. For a runaway slave in the culture and in the wickedness of the Roman system, according to the law, technically Philemon had the right to do anything he wanted to his runaway slave, including crucifixion. That was a typical punishment for slaves. That, of course, is inconceivable for those in Christ. Philemon himself has come to salvation. That's clearly not an option. But Paul is just writing to make certain Philemon knows he's not dealing with the old Onesimus anymore. He's favoring the present over the past, and in the present, Philemon is not receiving back the same man who ran away. He's gaining a useful, faithful brother. And just that, that being said, you know, today in, in peacemaking, you would do well to similarly favor the present, present circumstances over the past I think the biggest obstacle to reconciliation is forgiveness. And you know what makes forgiveness so hard is the past. That's why there's conflict. Something happened. And likely, if you're unforgiving, you're holding on to the past. But let's just say you're dealing with someone who's repentant. They're standing there before you like Onesimus. They are sorry. They've seen their hurt. They're seeking forgiveness But if you just hold on to the past, that bridge will never go back up. You must forgive and favor the present over the past. Like God, when when dealing with someone who's repentant, you must release someone from their past debts and and seek to to reconcile with them as they are in the present. Otherwise, that, that bridge of relationship will never truly be rebuilt. Thirdly now, Favor the interests of others over self. Favor the interests of others over self. Now in verses 12 and 13. Go ahead and look there. He goes on and and says about Onesimus, I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Now, Paul explains here a little bit more of what he's doing. He's sending Onesimus back to Philemon in person. He didn't really want to. I mean, personally, he would have just rather kept Onesimus by his side. This shows how truly useful Onesimus had become. I mean, look how close Paul Paul rather felt to Onesimus. He says in sending him, he's sending his very heart that, that's not a small sacrifice. He developed a real kinship with Onesimus. A special bond of affection had formed for his child in the faith. That he didn't want to let go of him. That's why he says in verse 13, he says, whom I wished to keep with me. It's a, a strong word for wish in the Greek. It's not talking about a passing desire, like a child who wishes for a toy, but then as soon as they see another toy, they completely forget about the first toy. No, Paul strongly wanted to keep Onesimus with him. Why? That he might continue, he says, to minister to him in his imprisonment for the gospel. But despite his strong desire, Paul is not keeping him. He is releasing him, even sending him back. Why? Well, despite his personal interests, it's it's, for one, it's just the right thing to do, but also for the sake of making peace between these two unreconciled brothers, Paul is going to put the interests of others over self. What he wants matters less than seeing these two brothers reconciled. And so Paul is happy, therefore, to lay down his will, his desires for the sake of reconciliation. Paul really had two options, keep Onesimus or release him back to Colossae. And in the end, the more loving option trumped his personal preference. And so he released him. When you think about it, Philemon now has the same two options. Either keep and punish Onesimus or forgive and release him. And he likewise needs to let the more loving option dictate what he does. He needs to put aside personal desire and especially societal pressure and let love Be his guide. This is another, I think, peacemaking principle. You know, all these principles are not hard and fast rules. They are just that, principles. But I think this one applies often in, in conflict to favor the interests of others over self. Selfishness is typically what leads to conflict in the first place. You want what you want. This other person is getting in the way of what you want somehow. And conflict emerges a total reconciliation is really going to take place, though, only when both parties come to deny self and put the interests of others ahead of themselves. It's a high standard. It's a difficult standard, but it's one to which we are called, like Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says. says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. It's a very difficult pair of verses. It requires you know, grand humility. You've got to, you know, like be like Christ and all that. But I would, I would dare you to give it a try. Just, just make an attempt, especially if you're in conflict with someone to to seek their interests, so long as they're not sinful, over your own and just see how that builds bridges of trust and love and peace. This does require ultimate humility and selflessness, but this is the way of Christ. He's the Prince of Peace who came first, lay down his life, his interests for our good. We need to do the same. Think about how you might need to humble yourself before others. Number four, need to keep moving here. Favor free will over compulsion. And favor free will over compulsion. I mean, if you look back in in the middle of verse 13, you see how Paul said he wanted to keep Onesimus. Why? He says, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment. See that phrase, on your behalf. Paul didn't know that, but what he's doing is assuming and affirming Philemon's gracious character. Now, Paul knows Philemon is such a man of love and faith that surely he would have jumped at the opportunity to personally minister to Paul in prison, but he didn't have that opportunity. So having Onesimus there in his place would have been the next best thing. Paul is is assuming Philemon would have been overjoyed to hear that his Onesimus was serving Paul in his place, and he'd be happy to hear it. But Paul does not want to presume too much. He doesn't want to give the impression that he's taking advantage of Philemon's generosity or compelling him to serve him, especially because, remember, Philemon doesn't even know Onesimus is with Paul. No, but as he goes on again in verse 14, he says, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Paul's already explained why he wanted to keep Onesimus, but now he's explaining why he's in fact sending him back. Even though Paul believed it was only good and right, for Onesimus to stay and keep serving in the ministry. He didn't want Philemon to be under compulsion to do the right thing and to have Onesimus there. If Paul, if Paul just presumed on Philemon's goodness and kept Onesimus by his side, really Philemon's service to Paul through Onesimus would have been disingenuine. It would have been phony. It's not a real act of goodness if you don't even know about it and aren't willingly going along with it. And furthermore, if Paul didn't send him back and just just kept him to serve, really that the reconciliation between these two men would have been ineffective, really non-existent. Forced reconciliation is not really reconciliation. You know that, right? Forced reconciliation doesn't really count. It's like two kid brothers playing and one steals the toy from the other, you witness this atrocity and you're, you're very upset. So you go and you speak to the first child and you say to him, like, hey, what you did was wrong. And you say, you, need, you better go over there and apologize this instant and give that toy back or else. So you're threatening punishment if he doesn't do it. So the child, maybe in, in fear, goes, gives the toy back, apologizes. But clearly with a bitter, angry, reluctant attitude. So you have, you have coaxed the right outward actions out of him. He has outwardly done what is right. But inwardly, he's still ruled by sin and selfishness. And so this reconciliation is just a charade. Nothing has actually changed. You've accomplished nothing. Instead, what you would need to do is skillfully address the child, graciously rebuking him for his sin, building conviction in his heart, We do this as parents through instruction and discipline. You're going to appeal to his conscience, help him see his his wrongdoing before his God. It's only that inward conviction of wrongdoing that will translate into true remorse and repentance. And if if that happens, what will happen next? The child is truly broken over his sin and convicted in his conscience, he will go over, give the toy back and apologize, not because you forced him, but because he really wants to. He wants to of his own little free will. That's that's really the only type of obedience God wants, by the way, is that which is from the heart, not of compulsion. He, He does not care about your gifts, your offerings, your worship out of compulsion. It does not mean anything to him. He only cares about that which comes out of your heart as an act of love and and true worship. And that likewise is the only type of reconciliation that matters. To get there, the heart must be moved and the will must be moved. Those in conflict must be moved to genuine conviction over their sin, real compassion toward one another, such that they want to come together in peace just out of their heart. If you ever find yourself in conflict with another, or maybe you're the third party playing peacemaker, like first and foremost, this is why you need to pray. You need to pray that God would change someone's heart, move them to humility, recognition of sin, brokenness, repentance, pray. But at the same time, you would do well to learn how to influence the will of others biblically. And that's what Paul himself is doing here. He's, he's paving the way removing all obstacles for Philemon to make the right response of his own free will. He's not manipulating. He's just making it very easy for Philemon to do the right thing. How do you move people's will? By convicting them with truth and letting the spirit do the rest. And one thing we as Christians must not do is resort to the manipulation tactics of the world. Like, for example, we're not going to lie. Think of the used car dealer. This past week, we bought a used car from a used car dealer, and you know the price was higher than expected. And I found the guy said, you know, part of it, the final price included this fifteen hundred dollar anti theft security system. We're like, we don't want that at all. Take that out. And he's like, can't, impossible, can't remove that from the price. So later, though, he knew I was about to walk away, and I really was about to walk away. So he brought down the price. let me go talk to my manager. I'm pretty sure he just stood in a room and looked at the wall for a minute, but he came back and lo and behold, he took off the security system. And I thought in my mind, like, wait a second, I thought you said it was impossible to remove that. (laughs) I didn't say anything. But as Christians, uh, we're not going to resort to such tactics and games to move the will of others. We're going to move the will of others simply by speaking the truth and allowing the spirit to bring conviction. Use the truth of circumstances to move people is what Paul is doing. This is why he's telling Philemon that Onesimus is a believer, as we already covered. He's, he's using the facts and the truth of the present reality to move him. And also use the truth of scripture to move people. You know, sometimes all a fellow believer needs is just to be nudged with the truth, pushed over the edge where they'll finally see, the, see things clearly. And then they will want to do the right thing. They'll want to reconcile out of their own heart and free will. And that really is the only type of meaningful reconciliation. So favor free will over compulsion. A couple more here. Number five, favor God's perspective over man's. Favor God's perspective over man's. Verse 15, he starts a new thought and a new sentence. He says this says, for perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. Now, Paul knows Philemon is likely upset over the whole Onesimus situation, maybe hurt, maybe wronged. But Paul is softening the blow a little bit by reminding him of the divine perspective. Though not happy about past circumstances and any damage done, Perhaps God's invisible hand of providence was at work to to turn these circumstances out for the greater good. And that's happened before. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament, separated from his brothers. Talk about a rift of relationship. They sold him into slavery. And later he was unjustly imprisoned. He suffered so much. But God lifted him up made Joseph second in command in Egypt. Through his position, he was able to preserve alive thousands of people through the famine, including his brothers. His brothers truly wronged him and did evil. But in the end, Joseph was finally able to discern that the invisible hand of God was at work this whole time to bring about a greater good. And so he famously says in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you you to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That doesn't excuse their evil. The brothers did wrong. God will judge or discipline them accordingly. Still though, as they're standing right there in front of Joseph, now humble and repentant for how they wronged him, Joseph, seeing God's perspective and how God may have used their evil for a greater good, it just helps soften the blow a little bit and enables Joseph to move quicker to mercy and compassion and then forgiveness. And so he forgives his brothers and even blesses them. And so now Paul wants Philemon to respond in like kind. Onesimus may have robbed you and defrauded you, and wronged you, He'd been separated for a while, but now he's come to salvation. When you think about it, in a a human sense, I mean, look, if he never ran away, there's a good chance he never would have come to salvation, right? But now, though, he has. Because of these circumstances, he's, he's now a brother in Christ. So, don't you think that might be God's hand at work to bring about a greater good? Hard to say it's not. Still, though, you'll you'll notice in verse 15, Paul carefully says, perhaps, here. He's not presuming on God either because no man can actually see the invisible providence of God at work. It's not like we have access to a special divine revelation that always explains to us why bad things happen. We do have principles of God's word to rely on, though, like like Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. Paul knew Romans 8.28. Paul wrote Romans (laughs) 8.28. So he's trusting that, that God has been working out this temporary rift between Philemon and Onesimus. To bring about this greater good. Their reconciliation. Now personally I found this very useful as a peacemaking principle. Because in counseling you're often dealing with people who are now living in the consequences of their sin typically why they come into the office. They've made a series of bad choices. They were deceived by sin and it's led to a big mess, hurt, sorrow, division. It's not a fun place to be, but if I discern that they're able to hear and receive it, I'll often bring in the little bit of a silver lining, God's perspective that perhaps, just perhaps God allowed you to stray and stumble and get into so much sin and suffering That like the prodigal, you might finally have your fill of sin and finally realize in your heart of hearts, it's not good. It's not better. It's better in the father's house that the way of the wicked is hard. That once and for all, you will realize this and like the prodigal, repent and just run back to the father's house, never to leave again. And you get to that point, that is a greater good. That heart resolve, some people just got to learn it the hard way. But if they learn it, It'll take him through the rest of life on God's way, and his way is good. That's what will lead a person back. Even after a great mess, God is a peacemaker. He can restore and heal someone completely. And that's what it takes to bring someone back to mercy, forgiveness, peace, rest, joy. And so you need to equip yourself with this divine perspective. is how God is always at work to make us more like Christ. Call this to mind when resolving conflict and see if it might similarly settle tempers and soften hearts. We need to finish up. Here's the last one. Number six, a final peacemaking principle, favor the labels of the second birth over the first and favor the labels of the second birth over the first. This is verse 16. We'll, we'll finish for today. This is a big verse. He goes on and says, He wants him to receive Onesimus back forever, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Here we really do get to a a monumental verse in this little letter. You know, back then it was unheard of for someone to write an appeal on behalf of a slave, just in general let alone ask that the slave be received back as a brother. But such is the nature of reconciliation in Christ. When, when scripture says we're one in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. This is what it means. That the labels and the distinctions of the first birth no longer separate us. That which used to divide us divides us no longer where we're united to Christ, we now share a common life and we are truly equal. People may still have different roles, but we are entirely equal when it comes to value, worth, personhood before God. And we should view and treat one another like that as well. Paul realizes this, he already knows how beloved Onesimus is to him personally. Now he says to Philemon, but now much more to you in the flesh and in the Lord, meaning on a human level, on a spiritual level, really Philemon and Onesimus are much more connected. They should find an even tighter kinship than anyone else. That will happen as Philemon receives Onesimus back, but no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. That phrase, beloved brother, if you recall back in verse 1, Paul called Philemon his beloved brother. It's a term he reserved for his closest ministry associates. Now he's using that term for Onesimus. He too is a beloved brother. That's meant to be a shock to to dare put a slave on the same terms. This is all unheard of. But look, it's just true because he's now in Christ. The first birth labels don't define him anymore. He's now just a beloved brother. True faith knows no class distinctions. So Paul makes sure Philemon knows that there's only level ground at the cross. He and his slave are equals. And therefore, he can no longer regard him as just a slave, now much more as his beloved brother. And that should change everything. When you think about it, just that distinction alone should spell the end of all the evils of slavery. I mean, say you had a brother, like a physical brother, who was in great debt. So he comes to you for help and you say, I'll give you food and shelter and money in exchange for all of your labor. Sounds like employment. So he gets to work, but if he falls short in his work, are you going to flog him? No, he's your brother. You love him. There might be consequences, but nothing brutal. If he accidentally damages your property, are you going to assert sovereignty over his children and enslave them too? No, he's your brother. You love him. You're not going to take his kids. The Romans did that, by the way. And what about at the end of the day, he's worked hard, he's labored long, he's paid off all of his debts, and he wants to just be free, set out on his own. Would you let him go? Well, yes, of course. He's your brother. You love him. You, you were happy to see him free and prosperous in life. And this is just how you would treat a brother. It would take time, and it wouldn't always be perfect, but when Slave owners became Christians. This is how they were meant to think. They were meant to come to these realizations and spell the end of slavery. There's more to come here. There's more to learn even about slavery. We will see that next week as the the final verses really drive home this discussion on reconciliation. But for now, just this last peacemaking principle is a big one. To favor the labels of the second birth over the first. Now we're just talking about fellow believers in the church. We are supposed to be united, one in Christ. We're often not. Division can occur between fellow believers. How does it happen? Well, often the culprit are, are all the same things that divide those in the world. And what divides those in the world? And typically, all these first birth labels, like you're black, you're white, you're not supposed to get along. You're rich, you're poor, you're not supposed to interact. You're male, you're female, you're not supposed to regard one another as equals. These first birth labels just demolish bridges of relationship though. But it should not be so in the church. These labels may still exist, but they're all superseded by a new label, that which comes from your second birth, your salvation. You're just brother, sister, Christian. We follow the same Lord. We have the same spirit. We under the same father. I think that means we're a family and that should change everything that that's enough by itself to repave every bridge we have. If only we would replace our old labels for one another with those that come by grace in Christ, the label we too have received purely by grace. You know, when all said and done, peacemaking is always going to come back down to love. Do you really have a love for the brethren and a love for the church? As we read this morning, First John 4, 7, and 8, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. When we love others, Especially those who are unlovely, especially those who have hurt us, but we love them anyway, even forgiving them. I think that's when we are least like humans and more, most like God. And so reflect the heart of God, which, which is love. If you want to build bridges, make peace, and see reconciliation in your relationships, you're not going to get very far without this love. So challenge yourself to truly love others. See those around you in and through Christ, the Savior who, who died for them. Who died for you, paid your sins, made you new, be challenged today and every day like Philemon, just to be stretched in how far you would take that love, what you'd be willing to do for a fellow believer for whom Christ died. You bear the name of Christ. Now all you have to do is just show the love of Christ and you will see peace. And you will be a peacemaker. And as it says, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray together. Our good Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of peace. And that you've made peace with us first and foremost. You do that by sending your son Christ, the Prince of Peace. And he made peace by the blood of the cross. Laying down his life, his interests, dying to self, physically, literally, he, he took our place. He bore the full wrath of our sin on the cross. This was all done out of love. Love for your glory. Love for us. We thank you for the Savior's love that he would go that far, that his love would, would just go that far for us to see us reconciled to the Father, that we would be brought to peace as this, the barrier of sin was removed. We need to reflect on how we are a people of peace, bought by the Prince of Peace, now called to be peacemakers, to likewise, just in following the Lord, put on that same heart of humility, regard the interests of others out of ourselves, and, and show love. That will come with forgiveness and putting away the past, releasing people of their debts. Even fellow believers, Lord, will sin against us and hurt us as we sin against you and hurt you. But again, may we be compelled to follow christ even in this and forgiveness and reconciliation teach us to be a people of peace we take these principles and apply them to our lives and may that characterize us uh, to our joy and to the world's witness as they see and behold how new life in christ is is so different from the world that really in the church we have the answers for uh, true peace and reconciliation that our world today our our culture today is is falling apart because they don't actually have the answers May we show them the way by how we live. May we be a people of peace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.